everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say that we are joined by Ariva Martin. Ariva is a civil rights attorney, a best-selling author, recently of the book Make It Rain, a TV host of The Special Report, a CNN legal analyst, an autism advocate, and recently the creator of the Butterfly app, which services those in underserved communities dealing with mental health issues. Welcome, Ariva. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this. We talk about politics and the law. It couldn't be a more uh, fitting topic for what's going on in the world today. Exactly. It was hard just narrowing down the topic. So speaking of what's happening in the world today, President-elect Biden will soon become President Biden. Yes, that is what's happening here in reality. And from your vantage point, what are the top three issues that you would like to see him tackle? I know it's hard to pick three. There's so many things that we could try and fix with our country. But if you were able to tell him, I'd really like you to do these things or address these problems in your first 100 days, what would you pick? Obviously, first, COVID-19. I mean, all of our lives have been upended because of the coronavirus, and we can't really fix anything in our lives until we can go outside. And right now, if you live in the state of California, and if you live in L.A. County, even going outside is prohibited unless you're you know, performing an essential function. So covid uh, 19 relief and focus on, on COVID mitigation strategies is number one. Number two is the economy. I, I meet so many people who uh, are just struggling, small businesses that have had to close, individuals who have lost their unemployment insurance, who don't know if they'll even be able to uh, you know, keep shelter over their heads. Uh, you know, in the next month or so, people who are suffering from food insecurities, uh, such a, a huge, huge issue. Uh, and three, climate change. Uh, you know, lots of talk about climate change, but not a whole lot of action. And the action that was taken with the last administration has just been, you know, it's like putting a, a person in charge of a science experiment who says they don't believe in science. That's what we've had as it relates to, you know, Donald Trump when it comes to anything climate related. And we live in California where we see these raging uh, fires that uh, destroy, uh, you know, millions and millions of acres of property and homes and, and cause so much devastation. So those would be my top three. They're big, but they are so, so important. They are big. Well, and they all point to different humanitarian crises. So people have to be able to live COVID and they have to be able to eat and have a roof over their head. And climate change, obviously, you know, we used to talk about this like it was this long term thing and it was coming later. And we just don't have that luxury anymore, particularly because we turned the clock back for about four years on regulations. How can a President Biden best tackle racial injustice, criminal justice issues. Are there things that you would like to see him do? Because I think I totally agree with your top three, but then of course, you know, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six, we have to tackle issues of systemic racism in our country. Oh, I think systemic racism, Jessica, runs through my top three. They're not separate and apart. That's why, you know, when people talk about systemic racism, it's not something you can put in a silo. 
it runs through each and every policy issue that's going to cross the desk of this president, whether it's a domestic or an international issue. The issue of equity, the issue of, of, of you know justice is going to be a part of it. So when you talk about COVID-19, let's start there, the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color, on Black and brown communities. The vaccine, who's going to get the vaccine? A huge issue in this this country. I've been talking about it on my show now for several months. Such distrust in the African-American community uh, of the medical community, of of the the scientific community, uh, and rightfully so. And the last poll showed as many as 70% of African-Americans said they would not take the vaccine. So... uh, and that all stems from systemic racism, you know, dating back to the Tuskegee project. And even before that, I mean, we go all the way back to, you know, African-Americans being brought over on slave ships and the way that white doctors experimented with slaves. So, so systemic racism in our healthcare system is a part of COVID-19. And obviously when we talk about the economy, you know, the wealth gap is just horrendous. Uh, it takes us back to the 50s. So I don't see systemic racism and issues of racial justice being separate from my top three. They are intricately uh, woven into those top three. Thank you for saying that. And this may be you know, a question coming from a Caucasian person, which is you would not correctly put it into a separate bucket, but you're right. It's a through line, right? If we look at who's impacted by COVID, if we look at who's impacted by what could be an economic recession or depression, if we look at who's disproportionately impacted by climate change. Um, Obviously, that is the through line. And what can President Biden do? I mean, how can he try and, for instance, you mentioned that there's understandable distrust in the African-American community of getting a vaccine. Um, Is it him saying something? Is it him appointing certain people? Um, What are some things that you think that he could do to try and say, I know that you couldn't trust the government before, but it's different now? Yeah, I think the first thing Biden has to do, Jessica, is is not fall into the trap of making systemic racism a, a separate issue and then dedicate a department that becomes the black department. And, right. you know, you're going to go and be the black czar and you're going to work on black issues because that totally misses the point. I, I think what you, he has to acknowledge is that the pervasive nature of racism in this country and how it permeates all of our institutions and all of the policies that he's going to be enacting and ensuring that there is someone at the table addressing race when you're talking about a playground being built, when you're talking about the inauguration, when you're talking about, uh, you know, addressing the fires in California, that you're always looking and there's someone on that team and not the black someone, but the someone with, uh, you know, decision-making authority that's looking through the lenses of justice, of equity. And I'll give you a good example. So when you read my bio, you said I'm an autism advocate and, and I'm very proud of that. My son was diagnosed with autism. I, uh, depressed, uh, couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't move for weeks and months at a time, and then, you know, sprung into action and became a a very vocal, outspoken advocate, not just for kids with, with autism, but kids in underserved and underrepresented communities. And at the table, and I served on just about every state commission, committee, blue ribbon committee on autism there was uh, in the early to early to mid 2000s. And 
I was the person at the table beating the drum about kids with disabilities. So if we were talking about, you know, school issues, it was always, but what about the kids with disabilities? If we were talking about, you know, building more play spaces, what about the kids with disabilities? And that through it had to convince people that we can't talk about any issue related to kids and adults and communities without taking into consideration individuals with disabilities, because that's how they get fully integrated into our society. If it's just the, the disabled issue, then we're always going to be segregated and disabled people will always be second class citizens. So I think the same approach has to be uh, taken when we deal with the race issue. If we take race and give it a department and put some people in charge of it, it's always going to be that second class department, you know, f- and that second class issue. But if he you know, makes it a part of his mandate, his governing mandate, that we're going to look at justice and systemic racism in every department in this White House. And every department is going to be tasked to address systemic racism in everything that they do. Then I think we have a shot at really making the kind of systemic changes that, you know, have never been made in this country before. I think that's so powerful. And it's, I mean, there's a corollary here in terms of women's issues, right? Well, let's just have a department that focuses on women's issues as opposed to understanding that, again, it's a through line for so many different issues. And I wanted to move a little bit to uh, President-elect Biden saying when he was a candidate, I will pick a woman as my vice presidential running mate, and I will pick, it became clear, a woman of color. And for me, I thought that was important because it signals and frankly says explicitly wherever there's a room where there are people in power and there are people pulling the levers of government that you expect to see women and women of color. Does a president-elect Biden have a obligation, an opportunity to do more of what we've seen, for instance, with his senior level press? Maybe this is a long way of saying, will this finally be an administration that looks more like us? I'm going to say the jury is still out. Uh, I'm going to say that, obviously, if, if we're doing a comparison between Biden and the last administration, it's going to be a 1,000 percent or infinite, you know, bigger number even than a thousand uh, improvement. That without question. But does Biden you know, does Biden and the people around him really get what you and I are talking about when we talk about this through line? I don't know that to be the case yet. I I think he has been sensitized to the issue, obviously. I think he has advisors around him like Jim Clyburn uh, and others who are in his ear about some of these issues. But I also know, and I've been around this a long time, that this is a huge task. This is not going to be the work for the faint of heart. This is going to be, you're going to get tremendous pushback. You're going to, you know, people are going to fall into old habits. They're going to, you know, be issues of, of you know, self-preservation. And, and, you know, politics in many ways is a transactional business, So people are also looking and and trying to position themselves for the next win. So I'm going to hold out judgment on whether Biden, the 78 year old man who I think in his heart would love to see uh, the, the playing field, you know, leveled for women and people of color. 
But I don't know that everybody in Biden's team shares that goal, you know, because so much of this becomes the people that he surrounds himself with. I don't know if they've bought into it 100 percent in the way that he has. I don't know if some of those white women start to feel threatened by the black women. I don't know if the white men start to feel threatened by the white women. I mean, there are a lot of human dynamics that are going to come into play because when you start talking about opening up and making room and, and dismantling systems of, of, you know, systems that have, have subjugated and subordinated women and minorities, you're 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 talking about doing some really really difficult work, and and what I know about race in this country in particular is we get right up to that line, and we 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 then get really nervous and we pull back, you know. So I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm hopeful, but if if I'm sitting here four years from now. And what looked like was going to be the great, you know, inclusive and diverse team is not so. I I wouldn't say that I'm all that shocked by it. A sad but realistic comment on what's happened just so many times throughout history. And, of course, even the most well-intentioned team that wants to be the most inclusive team has to contend with the fact that it seems to me that we are a different America than we were four and a half, five years ago, or at least we're in America where you get to say the quiet things out loud. And we're in America where there were a lot of people who were comfortable voting for a man who, from my personal perspective, espoused views that were racist and misogynistic and uh, discriminatory. And this is an unfair question, but how this is something I've been struggling with, and people keep asking me, you know, well, how do we move forward with it's not, I think, all the Trump voters, but it's a certain percentage of Trump voters who were comfortable with his comments about race and women and religious minorities. And i I don't think we just say, well, we leave those people behind. We ignore those people. Is there some? strategy we can employ? Is there something that we can do other than just saying you don't get to say that stuff out loud anymore? No, I think, Jessica, one of the things we have to do, and this is, again, this is the tough work. This is the work we don't like to do. And and I don't know if Joe Biden is the right person for this because I think he, you know, being the kind, gentle soul that he apparently is, I think he is probably idealistic in some ways. I, don't, I won't call him naive. He's obviously quite sophisticated and, you know, incredibly smart. But I had a guy, a recovering lawyer, he calls himself. He's now a, a more of a journalist and a political analyst. His name is Wajahat Ali. And he was on my show and, and he said he went on a journey. After 2016, he was working for the Huff Post and he had to cover, he was at the the, the uh, you know the big convention center in New York when we were going to be shattering the glass ceiling for Hillary Clinton, and he went out into the streets of New York and, and watched women sob, and you know just just saw the, the the frustration, the anger, the sadness, the disappointment, and he started interviewing people about what had happened in terms of Trump winning the election, and he started talking to some Trump voters, and they started telling him why they voted for Trump, and he said he went back. And he decided he was going to take a trip into the heartland and talk to these voters to try to better understand why they had voted for Trump. He's a Muslim. Uh, you know, he he was highly offended by Trump during the campaign. And obviously after the travel ban was even more offended. But he said one of the things he discovered is that 
after two years of, of trying, that there were people who just were never going to acknowledge him and his humanity, that they saw him and people of color as a threat to their lives, their lifestyle, their livelihood, and a way of life that they had become so accustomed to. And that no matter what he would say or no matter what anyone would say about a, a fair economic policy, raising the minimum wages, providing health care insurance, or talking about bread and butter issues that you would think would impact these, would, would impact, you don't even think, we know would make their lives better, that none of that was more important than the preservation of the status quo. And he says for him, what he discovered was that status quo was America pre-Brown versus Board of Education and the segregation of public schools. And I don't, so in the end, he concluded it wasn't worth it. Don't waste your time even trying to convince these voters. Move forward, uh, you know, trying to build a, a, a coalition of, of, of people who are willing to accept change and, you know, move forward with policies that do improve the lives of people. And, and I think there is some truth in what he is saying, because I think we will never solve this problem if we're not, if we don't have the, the fortitude, the constitution, the stomach to face it. And to face it means to just acknowledge there are people who the system as it currently functions favors them. And they are fearful of that system being upended or in any way challenged because they don't want to lose either their real power or their perceived power. So I, I think that's where we must start. We must acknowledge that that is real. And, you know, what happens is there's the, there are the apologists that quickly say, oh, no, all Trump voters aren't racist. Oh, no, all conservatives aren't racist. And I think when we make those blanket statements, it, it, it feels good. And it allows us then to ignore the reality that there are many voters who voted for Trump who are fundamentally racist and want to maintain a status quo that does not recognize diversity or inclusion. And I don't think if we if we refuse to do that and if Biden and his team refuses to do that, I don't think we're going to be in any different position in four years than we are now. I hope that we do at least start the hard work and it with so many things, as you point out, awareness is a first step and a big step. And I know that Race is something that is going to come before uh, the Supreme Court uh, in some fashion uh, in the next few years. And you and I, I know, think a lot about the Supreme Court. And before we get towards the end of the interview, I did want to ask you, because now we have a Supreme Court that's solidly six to three in terms of a conservative majority. Do you think that Democrats should, quote unquote, pack the court, meaning increase the number of Supreme Court justices? Are there other tacks that you think that we should take in the short or long term? Supreme Court judges, justices obviously have lifetime appointments. So there's not an enormous amount of wiggle room, but I did want to get your opinion on this. Yes. Uh, I, I think we should not use the word pack because if we're going to use that word, I think it's more appropriately to say that that is what Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump have done. They have packed the court with, in many cases, unqualified ideologues, uh, some right out of law school, some right at the beginning of their practices, you know, some who've had less courtroom experience than, you know, the, the basic, uh, you know, first year law student. 
uh, some who have clearly demonstrated an, an inability to set aside their personal uh, beliefs to act in you know a manner that would be fair as a judge. So I don't think the Democrats should should allow the the Republicans to frame the narrative uh, as packing the court. I do think the Democrats, if ha- if given an opportunity, should expand the court, should balance the court in a way uh, that allows for there to be, uh, you know, a fair review uh, of cases that will come before it and issues that will come before it and better reflect the reality of the country. Joe Biden got 80 plus million votes. Donald Trump got 73 million. So if we just look numerically, it says that, you know, a majority of the country in some ways, and you know, this is a simplistic analysis, but you know, it fits for this question. There are more people that think the way Joe Biden and the Democrats think than the way Donald Trump. So why should we have a Supreme Court that is, you know, reflects the opposite of what the American people have registered by way of their votes? So yes, I think the court, the court should be expanded and not just the Supreme Court. I think we have to look at appellate courts and district courts. And we do need to undo what I think has been harm done to the courts uh, by the Trump uh, administration and by Mitch McConnell as, as the leader of the Senate. Uh, I think it's unfair that D.C. doesn't have statehood. I think Puerto Rico should have statehood. So I, I think there is work to be done that, again, better reflects the the mood uh, the beliefs, the ideas of the majority of the American people. And, and that includes, let's have a conversation about the Electoral College. It burns me up that California, as big as we are and as important as we are to the rest of the country in so many ways, that our votes are marginalized, that we, you know, that the six states, the six to eight states, essentially get to pick the president of the United States. And that someone like Joe Biden could win the popular vote by what may be more than 10 million votes. But yet, you know, we're on pins and needles about small margins of of victory in a handful of states. I think there's something fundamentally unfair about that. That's not democracy. Yeah, I mean, what you're what you're talking about are really anti-majoritarian institutions, the Electoral College. Um, I mean, the judiciary is not supposed to be a majoritarian institution, of course. And then the Senate. Um, what would you do to change the Electoral College? Would you abolish it? Would you move to state by state, winner take all? I mean, it, the Electoral College has a, a storied and somewhat disturbing history of why we have it in the first place. And and you're right. I mean, you win California by 40 percentage points. You win it by 0.01 percentage points. You still get all our electoral college votes. And the rest are essentially, I mean, I hate to use this word, but kind of wasted when it comes to the presidential election. The game gets played in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, now, you know, maybe Georgia, Arizona, and Texas. And the rest of us are just on the sidelines. I don't know if you're familiar with these two authors. I just became familiar with them myself. They're both uh, social and cultural historians. One is uh, Alice Baumgartner, and the other one is Jonathan David Wells. And they both have written just fascinating books, uh, upending the notion that there was some uh, storied North uh, that consisted of white abolitionists who were 
you know, martyrs and saints as it relates to freed slaves. And then there was the, you know, slave owning South. And both of their books, uh, Jonathan's is called Kidnapping Club, reveals the inhumane treatment of free uh, African-Americans in New York and how Wall Street was actually built on uh, as a result of, you know, finance companies and, and bankers financing plantations uh, in the South and judges and lawyers and law enforcement actually kidnapping free black men and women and selling them into slavery, uh, back into slavery, even though slavery had been abolished. So uh, I just think during this moment right now that we're in, where you know the country is, is wrestling with our, our racial past, uh, there have been so many authors who have you know shed light on you know, on our past, and again, if, if you know if we don't know that past, we're doomed to repeat it. So I think the electoral college you know falls into that category of, of, of a part of our history that definitely needs to be revisited. More people need to be educated about it. I mean, it, you talk to someone about it, people have such limited even understanding of how it works. They do. And this is where I'll shamelessly plug one of our episodes where we talked to uh, Jesse Wegman, who's on the editorial board of the New York Times, and he wrote a great piece, Let the People Pick the President, the Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. And I'm going to check out the two authors that you talked about as well. And uh, Ariva, you've given us an enormous amount to think about. As loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, I like to end the podcast by hearing a little bit more about you. So I have three questions that I ask all my guests. There are no uh, right or wrong answers. Um, the first one is, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Ooh, Lucille Ball. I grew up watching uh, I Love Lucy. I was absolutely positively fascinated with Lucille Ball. I was heartbroken when I became an adult and learned that she was in an abusive marriage and that Ricky Ricardo, who I also loved on her show, was an alcoholic abusive husband. That shattered my childhood dreams. So I would love to uh, invite Lucille Ball to dinner and just, I loved everything about her, her style, her wit, her sophistication. So I I would love to to break bread with, with Lucy. Now that you said break bread, second question is, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? One item or a whole meal? A whole meal. Good. It's a good lawyerly follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, okay. That meal is going to have some popcorn. I, I, I eat more popcorn than just uh, imaginable. So it's going to have some popcorn. Uh, it's going to have some green beans cooked with uh, sautéed onions. That's one of my favorite dishes of all time. Uh, it's going to have catfish. Uh, I love catfish. A uh, piece of cornbread and probably some coleslaw. Final question. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it? Uh, see into the future. All right. You can find... <laughs> 
Ariva on Twitter, at Ariva Martin, all one word. You can find out more about her on her website, arivamartin.com. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Ariva, I'm so thankful for your time and for this conversation. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I love your work. I'm so glad we had a chance to sit down and talk. <laughs>